0: So we're gonna we're gonna pick up we're gonna pick up from mood disorders uh, where we left off. Mm-hmm. Uh, we mostly talked about uh, some of the symptomology. Let's talk about treatments today. Um, what tends to work for mood disorders? What uh, tends to show effectiveness? Um, we have. Uh, whoops. You have classes of neurotransmitters that are currently uh, being investigated in terms of how they affect mood um, one class is the catecholamine these are both um, part of the monoamine class of neurotransmitters um, catecholamines and the, among the catecholamines that we're looking at for mood disorders is norepinephrine dopamine and uh, epinephrine. So you know that norepinephrine and epinephrine are associated with um, excitatory responses generally. You probably think of those as um, in terms of adrenaline, right? And then uh, dopamine is associated with uh, activation of uh, pleasure centers in our brain. So um, when we stimulate Mm -hmm. certain parts of the brain, we get high rates of dopamine uh, production and it's associated with feelings of euphoria, right? So we think that uh, in this class, there's uh, either an excess or a a, uh, uh, a lack of one of those neurotransmitters. The endolamines are a separate class and include serotonin and melatonin. And these are very sort of calming neurotransmitters um so the question has been which of these is responsible for um like depression, for example, is it catecholamines that you know you're not getting enough excitation is it endolamines that you're getting too much you know calming too much- da- you know sort of too much downing too much or not enough upping um and so the treatments that have been under development have kind of been looking at these uh two classes one of the first treatments for uh uh depression and um was called uh I pardon Um, and um, this is a uh, this was a drug that originally was developed for tuberculosis, and it was found that um, these terminal tuberculosis patients uh, wound up feeling better after they were taking this drug. Um, and so there were a couple of ideas of why it might work this way. One was this catecholamine hypothesis, the idea that um, there's some sort of deficiency of these catecholamines in our uh, limbic system. The limbic system, remember, is associated with emotion and um, regulation, bodily regulation and memory, and that, uh, that that leads to depression, or we might have an excess, right? Excess epinephrine, norepinephrine, uh, excess dopamine, and that might lead to uh, mania. And um, the... Uh, a competing hypothesis was the, uh, called the praying hypothesis that it wasn't a deficiency of noradrenaline, which is one of these catecholamines that's active in depression. It's a deficiency of serotonin, which is kind of um, counterintuitive, right? Because ser- too much serotonin should give you um, those that depression. But now we're saying, well, maybe it's too little serotonin rather than too, uh, too little um, noradrenaline. And um, so here's what, uh, I don't know why these slides are coming out the way they are. Uh, here's what the uh, praying hypothesis says that um, noradrenaline, uh, serotonin is responsible for the, uh, for the general sort of depression phenomenon but that noradrenaline determines how your affect goes. If you have too much noradrenaline, then um, we see mania as the result, and too little we see depression. So it's the combination now in the Prang hypothesis of serotonin, too little serotonin, and then whether you have too much noradrenaline, or too little noradrenaline determines whether it goes into mania or uh, depression, right? So those were sort of two competing hypotheses and the current uh, hypothetical approach um, seems to favor the uh, Prang hypothesis, so, um, all right. Hope That's not too confusing. You know, don't don't worry about all these technical terms. I'm not going to ever ask you about that on an exam. This is kind of background so that you know kind of how we've gotten to where we are in treating the uh, disorders. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right, not really inhibitory. Um, I would say um, uh, energizing and calming, maybe. Because when we start saying excitatory and inhibitory, then we start talking about uh, EPSPs and IPSPs. No, yeah. Yeah, so um, this is more like um, uh, energizing, and these are more like calming or, or sedating, maybe even. Because remember, melatonin is associated with uh, sleep. Okay um, all right, so uh let's talk now about drug therapy. the therapies that were developed using these hypotheses, and um what kinds of drugs uh are currently used in therapy for uh depression. We'll mostly talk about depression, then we'll talk about bipolar a little later. I see some of you still madly scribbling um. Um, you may need to learn how to take notes in shorthand. <laughs> so um, so this is approximately uh, the order of how um, antidepressant medications were developed. The first type that was developed were the MAOIs, monoamine oxidase inhibitors. Now remember what I said about um the uh axon terminal and the receptor or dendrite remember from intro psych the axon terminal releases neurotransmitters into the uh synapse right and these neurotransmitters once they travel across the synapse and activate the receptor sites over here on the uh, uh, dendrite postsynaptic terminal. Once they activate these receptor sites, they're released and they're still sitting out here in the synapse even after they've done their job. So here's the problem. If they sit out there forever, they're just going to keep exciting to uh, keep uh, stimulating those receptor sites and keep uh, the um keep this neuron firing, and we don't want that. So what's going to have to happen is these are going to have to go away. And one way they go away is they go back into the uh, presynaptic terminal, the axon terminal. And this is the, um, the process known as reuptake. So they're reuptaked into the terminal and then once they're back in here they're bundled up into a vesicle and now they're ready to be used again um, when an action potential comes down and uh, stimulates the membrane. Uh, The other process is um, the idea that there are uh, enzymes in the um, interstitial uh, fluid here in between in, in inside the synapse. And enzymes do what? Anybody remember from chemistry? They break stuff down. They um, catalyze um, reactions is what they do. And so one of the reactions that's going to happen here is that oxygen is going to start breaking the molecular bonds of these neurotransmitters so that they're broken down into their constituent um, molecules and elements. Well, if, they're, if that happens, they can't activate the receptor sites and that's cool. So one of these enzymes is called monoamine oxidase, and guess what? It oxidizes, breaks down monoamines. Remember we talked about the monoamine classes, right Serotonin and um, uh melatonin, right so Mono, monoamine oxidase is going to be busy breaking these bonds and destroying these neurotransmitters. Well, if the problem is that we don't have enough uh, serotonin uh, in the synapses, then we need to keep more here. So one way we can keep more here is to inhibit monoamine oxidase from breaking down those bonds. And so that's the class of drugs called monoamine oxidase inhibitors, otherwise called MAOIs. If any of you are taking um, any kind of prescription and even over-the-counter medications, uh, you'll likely see a warning if you look on the back. You know, if you go home and t- look at cold medicine maybe, I think has it. Look on the back and it'll say, uh, you know warning do not take this if you're taking MAOIs or you'll see it on TV on ads for drugs because the one of the problem with the MAOIs is that they interact heavily with other uh drugs and even foods so those interactions are, are dangerous and can cause uh, problems or death. Um, So I talked about uh, MAOIs. The tricyclics, um, essentially what they do is they try to leave both more norepinephrine and serotonin in the synapse. So they're affecting either the receptor sensitivity or the reuptake process. So they kind of um, are working on a different process than the MAOIs, which is inhibiting that enzyme. They're actually operating on the receptors and the... uh, reuptake process. And that's a um, newer class and it uh, has less of these effects, um, but there's some other problems with it, which I'll talk about in a second. And then the SSRI classes, serotonin uh, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, Um, this class of drugs prevents this reuptake process from happening, so it leaves more of the neurotransmitter sitting in the synapse. It can also this drug also has some effects on receptor sensitivity, but mostly has effects on reuptake. So if we can leave more of the drug in the synapse, um, it can presumably be more active in uh, in affecting uh, depression. So currently the SSRI class of drugs is the one that's um mostly used now, although some tricyclics are used, but they're mostly used for uh other purposes other than depression now, yeah? Um, I, I think it's probably with a simple question, but uh um, as I know we uh um, people take drugs off um, and i take more and more because they don't get the same effect because um the uh food the receptor to okay. right. so bath. No. No, we don't find the same kinds of uh tolerance issues with uh with the SSRIs. Um or with the other drugs that I'm aware of. Uh what we will find is um, that people, you know, once you reach a therapeutic dose, you pretty much can stay at that dose for a long time. But what we'll what we will sometimes find is that particular formulation of SSRI drug will stop working for some reason and people will have to go through a process of switching to another drug to see if that one is going to help them. So um, that's the one thing we do find with these drugs over time. Uh, And then uh, there is the other issue which is the discontinuation syndrome. Uh, If you stop these drugs quickly Like, you know, basically, you're on a therapeutic dose and you stop taking them one day, uh, you'll, uh, experience, um, uh, increased levels of side effects and really unpleasant experiences. So, uh, these drugs are always tapered, um, when somebody's going to come off of them. So, uh, why use one over the other? Well, certainly the MAOIs are unpleasant because of the interactive effects, but, it's between then the tricyclics and the SSRIs. Essentially the um, advantage of the SSRIs over the tricyclics is it takes much less time for them to begin showing a therapeutic effect. Somewhere between two and four weeks usually, whereas the tricyclics are going to take a couple of months probably. And for someone who is, you know, depressed and maybe even suicidal, you don't have two months to wait uh, to relieve those symptoms. So, um, And as I said, in addition to, uh, you know, these considerations of how quickly these things are going to act, you also have to think about what kinds of side effects are going to be present, because just like you were reading in An Unquiet Mind, it's the side effect profiles of the drugs that sometimes will determine whether a patient is going to continue taking it or not. You know, these side effects profiles can be so intense that um, it just is intolerable. Um, uh, one of the issues with the tricyclics is that the dosing is very tricky. Um, there's um, the the line between the therapeutic dose and the overdose is um, pretty fine So there's a a very high potential for overdose in the tricyclics. In addition to some of the other side effects that can occur, they don't occur, of course, in everybody, uh, but they can occur, especially if the doses are too high, right? So it's always with these um, psychotropic medications, it's always a process of getting the dose high enough to be therapeutic to relieve the symptoms, but low enough that they're not going to be causing too many Unpleasant side effects, and that the um, patient will keep taking them, right? As I said, the MAOIs have lots of interactive effects. The SSRIs, um, some of the typical um, uh, effects have to do with agitation or sort of general nervousness. Sexual dysfunction is fairly common. Um, So those can be really problematic uh, effects for people, yeah? Don't they use the SSRIs for uh, generalized anxiety disorder? I think so. Yeah, isn't that odd? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, you know, and it's also this sort of weird thing with, um, like, uh, ADHD, uh attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, that s- stimulants are actually used to treat that, and people respond well to the stimulants. Yeah, yeah. So, so, effect, right? that, so we call that sort of a paradoxical effect, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um that's a whole nother drug, yeah. These what we've been talking about here are mostly um drugs that are acting in that um catecholamine and um monoamine class of neurotransmitters and lithium is gonna be a different story. And it's used for bipolar, and right now we're more focusing on depression. Marijuana? What can uh, marijuana is classified as a hallucinogen. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, in cases of patients who don't respond to medication, um, we do have what uh, used to be called uh, shock, well, what is called shock therapy, um, starts out uh, really in the eighteenth century. Um, the idea here was to shock the nervous system. And by shocking the nervous system, you could almost like reset it, almost like rebooting a computer. And what they found was people felt better afterwards. Um, so they would wrap uh, patients in these cold blankets. It was called uh, uh, sort of hypro- hypothermia treatment. And um, after a while, they uh noticed that, when people who had epilepsy, but also had schizophrenia, uh, after their epileptic seizures, their symptoms seemed to be reduced. And so what they did was they said, can we somehow induce seizures in people who don't have epilepsy, but have schizophrenia? And uh, the Sackle treatment, uh, named after the physician who developed it, was uh, to, um, uh, inject uh, insulin into the patient basically inducing uh, an insulin coma and so the patient would essentially go uh, have seizures uh, and then they'd go into a coma and then they'd have to give them glucose to bring them out of the uh, di- essentially diabetic coma and so what they found was these patients seemed to get better afterwards but of course, it didn't last all that long, so they'd have to keep doing it. And it's a pretty brutal procedure, um, as I showed you some of those videos earlier in the class. Uh, turns out that electroconvulsive therapy, which is what is used for depression, um, doesn't work well for schizophrenia. So, um, And fortunately, we found in the 1950s, we found the drugs that work well for schizophrenia, so we don't have to put people into... Uh, Diabetic comas anymore. Um, so ECT, electroconvulsive therapy. Um, there's essentially the old school ECT and the new school ECT. The old school ECT. Yes, I know it's misspelled. I did that on purpose. Um, I try to be hip, but it never works. You know, I'm like all like you know, trying to do all my yo yo. Would it do, dog, right? And like it never comes off, right? So, um, The old form of, I'll just say the old form of ECT um, used a very high voltage. And it ran it basically across the brain. So you hooked up an electrode to uh, both sides of the brain and ran the current right through the brain. And it had a lot of problems associated with it. Whereas the newer forms of ECT have uh, much fewer problems because it's been refined. And so now they use a much lower voltage. You know, you don't maybe not consider that low, but it compared to what they used uh, in the 1950s, it's pretty low. And the electrode is typically only applied to one side of the brain um, rather than two. So it doesn't pass, you know, wholesale this electricity through all your cerebral cortex. Um, and so apparently, as a result, there are fewer problems with memory and learning afterwards. Um, but unfortunately, there's a relatively high rate of relapse. That is, people will have to have this treatment again before too long. Um, and uh, so they'll always try to use as best they can uh, medication and psychotherapy before they try to resort to uh, ECT. Yeah, I don't remember. I think they might have. Yeah, yeah, I don't know which side they generally use. Yeah, I don't know what the rates are. I think it's fairly low. Most people who have uh, major depressive disorder will respond to medication and psychotherapy. Yeah. I that I I saw that. Oh, okay. No was I
1: was like, Oh, wow. form of
0: therapy. Yeah. It does seem pretty brutal. It is pretty brutal. You know, it's a pretty, it's an insult to the to the body. But um, for people that uh, are suicidal and there's no other way out, it it really is a blessing. For you know, these people describe it as a miracle when they go through it. Yeah. yeah and it's apparently become it's really on the, up, on the rise as a form of therapy now. Y- well um yeah yeah uh you know if, if you if the thing is that what you'll do with drug therapy is you'll keep increasing the dose of the drugs until you start to see it working and you get to a certain point where the dose is so high on the drugs, the side effects are so bad that you just can't do it anymore, you know. And um and for those people the ECT um by comp by comparison is uh is a godsend, yeah. 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 So haven't ever to do a combination of like E P T and a drug therapy? Like people are like really, really, really depressed with their last result, like do a couple of treatments of this and then be able to get them to a level where they drug uh I don't know the history of that. Um I'm not sure, yeah. I would think so. Uh, a relatively new treatment that is starting to come on the scene and hasn't really been approved for use in clinical uh, settings yet um, is called vagus nerve stimulation. Um, the vagus nerve is a nerve that runs, uh, I think from your brain and it, and it it uh, has to do with motor movement, I th- think, in your um, heart, uh, heart muscles. And um, and it's directly connected with the limbic system, the hypothalamus and the um, amygdala. Remember, the hypothalamus is involved in bodily regulation, right? And so uh, what they tend to see is when they do this vagus nerve stimulation technique, they'll get um, increased activity in this area and people seem to feel better, so. Um, but this is really new and not very uh, very well understood yet, but I wanted to let you know about it because in a few years it'll probably become more common. Yeah, it's one of the, it's the part of the nerve trunk that um, does the involuntary control, the muscles in the, ner- in the heart, yeah. Yeah, right. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. I don't know how they avoid any problems with heart, heart function, but yeah. Yeah, right. (laughs) Um, Seasonal affective disorder, Uh, again, a um, uh, not a new disorder. Um, You know, we see, uh, for example, as early as the Greeks, Uh, They would take people who they described as lethargics and lay them out in the sunshine and they seemed to get better. Um, (laughs) You know, give them a nice tan and, you know, a little bit of cocoa butter, looking good, feeling good. Yeah. Um, Of course, I don't know how they did that with all their robes on and stuff. But um, So the... There are a bunch of theories about why uh, light therapy works for seasonal affective disorder. Um, you know, we certainly think that the circadian rhythm is a- is affected by seasonal affective disorder. That is the sort of daily cycle of wakefulness and sleepiness that we go through. And that's mostly controlled by the cycle of light that we're exposed to. Uh, if we... Uh, if we put somebody in a completely dark environment um, they still run on approximately their cycle runs on approximately twenty five twenty six hours um, but the uh but the uh, changes in light outside do have an effect on our process of how we wake up and go to sleep so they think that um the issue is that uh the SAD helps decrease the amount of melatonin in your system, which leads to an increase in norepinephrine and serotonin. Um, or there's a second competing hypothesis, which is that norepinephrine isn't in the picture at all, that it's just serotonin that's affected. But those uh, that data really is unconclusive. So um, why it works, we're not sure. In the same way that, why ssris work incidentally we're not sure don't be um, don't be fooled that you know we know exactly what's going on in these synapses we have ways of kind of figuring out it, how much neurotransmitters are present in someone's brain but um it it's it's a it's it's a fatal process we can't do it on humans we have to mush your brain up and then run it through a centrifuge and see how much neurotransmitters are there. So yeah. So um, so we have really no exact way to know if this is really what's going on but when we give people this class of drugs they get better and we say okay we're gonna keep doing this until we do figure out exactly how it works. Okay so um, in the same way SAD seems to work for a lot of people that have or light therapy seems to work for a lot of people that have seasonal affective disorder. yeah you know, yeah 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 you know uh, common sense goes goes only so far though unfortunately in yeah. in research um then we find out sometimes it breaks down um let me run through uh bipolar stuff, and then we'll take a little break here um so, in An Unquiet Mind by Kay Ridfield Jameson, you're reading about her struggles with bipolar and her issues with taking the medication that is, that's usually sort of considered the gold standard for bipolar treatment, which is lithium. Uh, a naturally occurring salt, um, it's been used for a long time to treat bipolar. The issue with lithium is that each individual has um, uh, uh, an effective dose. It's very difficult to determine what the effective dose is gonna be for people. So it has to be started at a relatively low dose and then increased and increased and increased till you get the effective dose. But the problem is that it has these intense uh, side effects uh, as the, as the uh, book that you're reading indicates and it also has uh, it also has a very fine line between what is a therapeutic dose and what can be an overdose. So it can sometimes be um, hard to get it to the therapeutic dose without it being so toxic that it starts to get into overdose ranges. Uh, an additional set of drugs, um, anti-convulsant drugs have also been used effectively with bipolar um, and particularly in cases where the bipolar has a very acute onset. When we use the word acute, we mean sudden. Um, so it comes on very quickly as opposed to in, in, in a in an unquiet mind you see the bipolar disorder sort of coming on gradually with her, um, some with some individuals it'll just you know, they'll be one day essentially they'll be normal. The next day they'll go through, they'll start their cycles, their extreme cycles. And for those people, uh, anti-convulsant drugs tend to uh, be effective. And then there are the antipsychotic drugs, which are sometimes used for people with extreme and severe mania, um, where they're actually having psychotic delusions and hallucinations. Right, so we see a little bit of that with Kay Redfield Jamison, but it turns out that um, she doesn't describe that very often in, in the rest of the book. So, uh, the problem with antipsychotics is tardive dyskinesia, and this is a problem for people with schizophrenia that are taking antipsychotics, which is what they're normally prescribed for, which are uh, involuntary tics, muscle motor movements that people have. Right. Um and they that can be very disturbing to the person and also very disturbing to other people who wonder, you know, you run it you're like, What's wrong with this person, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, a couple weeks ago when they actually had that program on childhood uh bipolar. Did you see that? Yeah, I did and the that was a very disturbing program. There was this one boy that had been just for yeah, the this, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if that, I don't know if that's the same thing as tardive dyskinesia or not. Um, Yeah. Uh, Calcium channel blockers uh, is a a fourth class of drug that's used for bipolar. And the big advantage to that drug is it can be used safely uh, in pregnancy. These other drugs are uh, toxic and can't be used in uh, pregnancy. So um, someone who has bipolar and wants to have children Uh, can hopefully um, control the symptoms uh, throughout their pregnancy, too, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Do they have cumulative effects? I don't know. Generally, we say that, let's see. I don't know about these drugs. I know with the uh, SSRIs and most drugs have something called a half-life. Yeah, and um, the half-life being that the amount of time that um, the that half of the effective dose remains in your body or something like that. And um, the shorter the half-life, the more quickly the drug uh, is removed from your system by your liver and all that kind of thing. So I don't know. I don't know the uh, aside from that I just don't know. Yeah. Are channel like prescription too Mhm. Yep. All these are prescription drugs. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. <laughs> okay neurotransmitter what is so the question is what does it mean calcium channel blocker um, no I just have to figure out how to illustrate it yeah um if I were to draw for you a um, diagram of a receptor site for neurotransmitters Here's what it would kind of look like. I mean, I'm not a very good artist, and I'll try to do this in 3D because <laughs> it it looks best in 3D. Um, um, and um, so think of this as like. The membrane of the um, dendrite mm-hmm. um, and uh, anybody here in chemistry um, do you know uh, calcium is a negatively charged ion is that right it's it's positive. Positive. Yeah. plus plus mm-hmm. okay so calcium is a uh, element that has um, a positive electrical charge um, and in, your, in the um, membrane of the receptors, and it's also in the membrane of um, neurons and axons, I think, is something called a calcium channel. And here's the deal when there's a stimulation here what will happen is the calcium channel will open and when the calcium channel opens uh, let me see it's going to want to depolarize so what it's going to do is it's going to let the calcium which is at a higher concentration outside the um, receptor move into the dendrite and it's going to increase the charge here and what that's going to do is it's going to stimulate um, the ability for that neuron to create an action potential. Right. So if we block that channel, that pore essentially, these are called pores sometimes, if we block that channel, then we can't get it to happen. Okay? So it blocks the action of the neurotransmission? Yeah, yeah, neurotransmission I'll say. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean that's the short answer, but. In, in order to kind of get the deal with the calcium and the channel and everything else. So I think that's probably a better way to explain it, yeah. So what's the uh, downside of that? So that's a good question. I think it may cause more um, sort of uh, lethargy, more <laughs> sort of deadening of, the, of your general kind of sensory experience. I think you get kind of, like a, you have a big blanket on you sort of, but I'm not sure about that. Yeah, that's for some reason that sticks in my mind. What uh, about the SSRIs? SSRIs during pregnancy, I don't know. I think so, but I, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not really a psychopharmacologist, so I'm sort of on the edge of my knowledge here. Yeah. Good question. Okay, good. So this is a great question. Um, So this has to do with prescription. And um, let me pass out to you an article that I made a copy of today. Um, This is in the most recent version of the uh, Monitor, which is um, not really a journal. It's not really a peer reviewed journal, but it's a pretty good magazine that's produced by the American Psychological Association, and the articles are very readable, which is what I like about it, in an in, in undergraduate course. Um, so, uh, so the question is, um, medical doctors have the ability to prescribe psychotropic medications. Uh, they can prescribe anything. They can prescribe antipsychotics, very powerful antipsychotics. They can prescribe antidepressants that are relatively benign. Uh, they can do all kinds of um, prescription things. And the question is, are they qualified to do that? In some cases yes, in some cases no. There's lots of really bad doctors out there, there's lots of really good doctors out there. Uh, in general I say if you have a psychological disorder and you want to relieve the symptoms with medication go to a psychiatrist because a psychiatrist has more experience with dealing with that just like i would say you know if you um have um you know a problem with your gallbladder go to an internal medicine specialist rather than a general practice doctor you might go to the general practice doctor and say you know i'm having having these pains and the general practice doctor hopefully will say well, it sounds like a gallbladder thing, so um, let's uh send you over to the specialist. Uh, but there's also a very good reason for general practice doctors to do prescription for psychological disorders. Why? Any ideas? Yeah. Okay. So if it's your family practice doctor which it may or may not be. Uh, you could say that they know more of your holistic experience uh, health-wise, but there's something other than that, too. What else? Doctors see do you, you know, most people have their doctors do quite while well, and so they'll see, you know, how you are, and if they notice, you know, change in... You know. Yeah, that's just sort of the same thing that Jenny was talking about, the idea that they know you over time. Um, anything else you can think of? Well, it may not be such an issue because, A, you live in a very sort of progressive town. You know, Portland's a very progressive, at least it thinks it's of itself as very liberal and progressive. Uh, and you live in an urban area, so it's not so much of an area, uh, not so much of an issue. But guess what? If you live in a small town of 1,000, 2,000 people and you walk into a psychiatrist's office, everybody in town is going to know about it. And there's a stigma, you know. I mean, not if you go to the next town, to the next town over, yeah. Uh, probably even then. Um, you have to go, you know, a couple hours away or something. So, uh, you know, so there is some, there are some very useful reasons to say, yes, general practice doctors should have this um, capability. Uh, but um, in general, I would say if you can to go to a psychiatrist. But, Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, there might not be a psychiatrist within 500 miles of a, a rural area. Sure. Yeah. Good point. Uh, one of the articles in here that I'll point to you is um, uh, page, uh, on page 56. It's called Frontline Psychopharmacology. A paper cut, bummer. Oh, um, the um, and it's about uh, psychologists who are gaining uh, prescription privileges. It used to be that only psychiatrists could prescribe uh, medication, but there are now two states, uh, New Mexico and Louisiana, and there are more states that are exploring it. The idea that psychologists should be able to prescribe at least some classes of these powerful uh, uh, psychotropic drugs, yeah. Well, if they do that over here, that mean that the psychologists have to go back to training, or do they have training? Not generally. They generally have the training. Um, you know, they don't have, you, you know, really, um, that's a good question, and that's probably a good question for the legislature to decide. Um, I think it, there wouldn't be any problem with it to at least get training in psychopharmacology, um, uh, but for the most part, we have a general idea of how these things work, and um, especially with the less dangerous drugs, you know, like the uh, SSRI classes and that kind of thing that are more common, I think it's probably, um, there's probably no problem with it. the schools, in places like, you said Louisiana? Yeah, Louisiana and uh, New Mexico. I don't think so. I don't think so. And, uh, inf- you know, it, it really is a product of licensing and um, internships, um, you know, because you can you'll if you go for a clinical psychology degree, uh, you, I can get a clinical psych degree in, uh, you know, in Portland or in Oregon and go to New Mexico and take the licensing test and become a licensed a psychologist there and presumably be able to uh, prescribe. So um, it, it may be there may be some requirements in the licensing or in the uh, 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 or in the internship um, or supervision I'm not sure. Yeah that, that article may tell you I haven't had a time to read all these articles yet I just read through um, parts of uh, each of them so This magazine just came in the mail a couple days ago, so I thought it was appropriate. Uh, Basically, this set of articles is about um, when is it appropriate to use medication for psychological disorders. So the first article says, talks about depression, anxiety disorders, and um, then the second, a drug pipeline problem, talks about new uh, medications that are coming on the scene. Um so and then then the last set of articles starting with Frontline Psychopharmacology talk about um psychology's prescription privileges um, and then the last one is uh which states have it and which states are considering it Oregon's one of the states that's considering it so um that's you know that won't be on the exam or whatever so if you're the kind of student that only reads what's on the exam don't worry about it but If you're interested, um, maybe it'll be helpful. Let me go through a couple more things before we take a break here today. Uh, What about, we talked about biological treatments up to this point, let's talk about psychological treatments. Um, Particularly for depression, less so with, uh, I'm not gonna talk so much about bipolar disorder. But uh, for depression, we've basically got um, a couple of types, uh, really three types of treatments behavior therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT, and interpersonal therapy. Um, and then there's also psychodynamic. Um, so essentially with behavior therapy, um, we're looking at changing the individual's behavior by changing the reinforcements in their environment, right? So, this brings us back to talking about what you learned in Intro Psych, about learning. And I talk about the ABCs of behavior. Antecedents precede behaviors which are followed by can't make it, it's too far, followed by uh, consequences, sorry to scare you, I just threw it right out, she's like, oh! consequences, here on the podcast, I just threw away a marker, but uh, antecedents, yeah, I don't torture my students regularly, but I enjoy it once in a while. Behaviors. OK, so antecedents, ABCs. Antecedents precede behaviors which are followed by consequences. So operant conditioning, remember? Um, the likelihood that you engage in a behavior is a direct influence of the consequences of that behavior. So if you are re- reinforced after a behavior, you're more likely to engage in that behavior in the future if you're punished for a behavior, you're less likely to engage in that behavior in the future. And so behavioral therapy relies on setting up reinforcements in the environment to uh, occasion, as it's called, to encourage that particular behavior that we want. Um, And what it relies on is something called a functional analysis, which is a very detailed analysis of what kinds of behaviors the person does and what the reinforcements are that, uh, that uh, encourage that behavior. And, um, so this typically tends to work for people, um, especially in anxiety disorders, and we'll talk about that a little bit more. But, uh, but also, uh, it works in some cases with depression. But what winds up being developed after behavior therapy, remember, behaviorism dominates psychology from, say, the 1910s, 1920s, really up until about the 1950s, 1960s. And um, Aaron Beck in the 50s and 60s comes up with a new idea, which is that um, what's needed is not necessarily just to change the behavior, but to also change the thinking patterns that are associated with depression. And um, so what he starts doing is he says, if we can record what antecedents there are to a behavior and the thoughts that are associated with them, can we come up with different ways of thinking that are less destructive? So now it's taking the behavioral paradigm and saying, well, not only do people engage in behaviors, but they engage in thinking processes. You know, we all have these kind of ruts that we get in of thinking, and how can we get out of the rut of the thinking? And cognitive behavioral therapy is about changing people's uh, thinking patterns. But also, that change in thinking patterns can lead to behavioral changes, and those behavioral changes can be reinforced, and they can change thinking patterns, and so it's the idea that thinking and behavior are interconnected. Behaviorism wants to ignore what's in the black box, remember, you know, what's going on in your brain, behaviorism says, isn't important because we can't observe the inputs. All we can observe is the inputs and the outputs. We can't observe what's going on inside. And and Aaron Beck says, we have to think about what's going on inside because it affects people. So CBT starts to become the main line of treatment. And it turns out that um, it's gonna be the dominant treatment. It still is really. Um, and it works really well. So um, developing new behaviors and and, um, changing ways of thinking. Interpersonal therapy is um, a more recent innovation and I can't really talk about it because I don't know much about it. I don't know why I have it on that slide. That's odd. Interpersonal therapy. I can't remember what, what I say about that usually. I don't have any notes for that side. Oh well. Um and then the other uh mode of therapy here of course is our friend psychoanalytic, psychodynamic. Um so we're trying to get to the unconscious what in the unconscious mind is leading you to uh behave the way you do and think the way you do. Um but that uh is less um uh less likely to be used now, although there still are some psychoanalytic practitioners. Yes, yeah, that means Freudian. It it derives out of the Freudian perspective, the psychodynamic perspective, which is Freud's theoretical approach yeah, of unconscious. Mm-hmm. What's that? That, like that? It can be. yeah it's the 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 thing yeah it 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 has good explanatory power and it allows you to develop hypotheses that can then be tested that's that's as much good as i can say about it unfortunately <laughs> i have my biases too um so the question then is um do you use medicine or do you use psychotherapy, and that's one of the things that this first article is going to address. Um, here's the deal. The effectiveness of drug treatments for depression are essentially equal to the effectiveness of psychological treatments for depression, but that's all less, than, less effective than the combination of drug treatment and psychotherapeutic uh, treatment. And so this is data from an article from the Journal of the American Medical Association. I can't remember what year this is from, but it's relatively recent. And they looked at um, Paxil, um, treatment using Paxil, treatment using cognitive behavioral therapy, and treatment using a placebo, and how effective each of those were in reducing symptoms. And they found that the most effectiveness came from the combination treatment, um, Paxil had a somewhat higher uh, treatment profile than CBT. Other studies are showing that they're approximately equal um, and the placebo treatment had a much lower effectiveness. Um, now uh, there is some weakness in this data and I'll talk about that in a second. So the question then is starting to arise why do these combinations work better? And so we tend to think of the drugs as useful in reducing the symptoms, which allows then someone to actually get to the underlying problem. Because if they're embroiled in the symptoms, they can't work on the complex stuff that needs to happen. So this is the same issue uh, that comes up in An Unquiet Mind, right? You know, essentially that's how she describes it. That, um you know, that the drugs are helping her keep a lid on things so she can do the psychotherapy and work on the, uh, deeper issues. Um, there was some, uh, news recently in the last few years about Paxil increasing the likelihood of children or adolescents, uh, having suicidal thoughts. Um, and so they put big warnings on the, on the, uh, on the labels of the um, uh, medications and on, uh, the physicians were warned to not prescribe to children and adolescents. And guess what? We saw an increase in the suicide rates of children and adolescents. Um, yeah, I question? I say that's true personally because when I was younger, like freshman in high school, I was put on Paxil and all of a sudden I was even more depressed what I thought, you know, I mean, I was yeah so see so, like, um, like, you know. so you have an empirical um, yeah. you have uh, uh, an anecdotal experience with that yeah um, we do see a slight increase and here's the deal if we just use the paxil alone we will get an increase in suicide risk uh, but what happens is when we see Paxil used in combination with psychotherapy in adolescents and children, we see a huge reduction in suicide risk. So, um, so the problem is, uh, is not the Paxil itself. The problem probably is the idea that, um, you need both the reduction in the, uh, You know, the the, helping the symptoms, but also helping uh, teenagers and uh, children develop these psychological coping mechanisms that are going to be a buffer against the social pressures that are interacting with the biological predispositions which the Paxil is working with, right? So this is the whole idea that we have to take it as an integrated approach to dealing with the symptoms, but also dealing with the coping mechanisms and the stressors and the underlying problems, right? Um, here's uh one of the problems in this study. Um, this was not a blind study. The doctors knew which was the Paxil and which was the placebo. Um, And so we don't really know whether, and and the patients knew, um, patients could tell, I'm sure, um, that whether it's the patients that are believing in the effectiveness of these or whether it's really um, an effect of the drugs. But um, it's not bad data. It's just not conclusive because it wasn't run as a double-blind placebo-controlled study. It's very difficult to do placebo studies of therapy. Um, essentially what you do is you put somebody in a room and have them talk to somebody uh, who's not administering therapy but just sitting there and talking um, and so it's really difficult to know uh, how to how to do that. Um, what about prevention? What do we know about prevention? Um, first of all uh, one of the things that we know that's associated with the onset of depression is um, ongoing, sort of chronic, intense stressors. Um, and so, if you can recognize that when someone's going through a period like that, you know, getting them into some sort of therapy that allows them to deal with and develop the coping mechanisms to buffer those stressors is going to be useful. And then also, um, looking out for adolescents who show a risk for. Uh, depression or suicide. But that starts getting into these whole problems of labeling students, labeling adolescents as at-risk and then that becomes part of their identity, right? And so the same kinds of problems that we see in An Unquiet Mind with her identity being tied to the mania in the same way some of these teenagers can tie their identity because they're all you know at this age remember uh, Erickson's uh, stages of development Identity versus role confusion happens during adolescence, so they're searching for identities. And if they latch on to this at-risk identity, it's going to be difficult for them to give up in in uh, therapy or treatment. So, oh, thanks for sticking in there with me. Any uh, questions on that before we take a break? Yeah, let's take a break.